Good morning, Cross Point. Good morning, kids. You can be released for Children's Church, and if the rest would turn with me to the book of Amos this morning, as we are starting a brand new series in the Minor Prophets. So Amos is between Joel and Obadiah. And so as you turn there, this new series that we're going to be going through is there's 12 books of the Minor Prophets. And you might remember me in the previous weeks, what I've said is the difference between the major prophets and the minor prophets is not necessarily important, but merely the length of the book. So when you think of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, that would be considered the major prophets. We're going to be looking at those smaller books of the Bible that can often be overlooked in the Old Testament, and we're going to be taking them one by one. But you're also going to notice we're taking them out of order of how they appear in the Bible. And the reason why we're doing that is I want to put them in chronological order to help us understand the historical context. And so we've put together some resources to help you uh, in this journey as we walk through these books. So hopefully you received one of the worship guide on your way in. You'll see that there's a QR code at the top. There was also a bookmark so you know which books we're going to be studying in which order in the coming weeks. My encouragement is this week that you would begin reading Jonah for next week as we study that book together so that you're familiar with the book since I don't have time to read the entire book here on Sunday morning, but we'll be walking through it. Some of the resources that you'll find, you'll see that there's a timeline there that kind of explains like... There's a split in the kingdom of Israel, Judah in the south, Israel in the north, who is speaking to to whom and when. And so I tried to lay that out in a timeline. You'll see the reading plan there. There will also be sermon notes. I made sermon notes for today and I put them on the webpage, but it turns out I forgot to hit update. So they haven't appeared. So as soon as I get home, I'm going to hit that update button and you'll have the sermon notes because if you're like, this is a lot of information, it is. And I want to help us to be able to process that together. But today, like I said, we're going to be looking at the book of Amos. So before we start at the very beginning, let me open in prayer and then we can dive in together. Lord, I thank you for this time this morning and as we open your word Lord, I pray that as you say over and over again, the Lord has spoken. You have declared your truth. And Lord, I pray that this morning you would give us ears to hear. You would give us hearts to receive what it is that you want to say to us this morning. That you would give us humility to to surrender our hearts before you. Lord, and that you would empower us as your people to live in the light and truth of who you are, and Lord, and what you declare to be true. And so, Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're there, in the book of Joel, I want you to look at the very first verse, because it kind of sets a stage, and there's something here I want us to see that I think is important when it comes to Amos and something that is unique about him. Because he says, these are the words of Amos, one who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa. This is right between the northern and southern kingdoms. And what he saw regarding Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Johash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And this is what I want you to see. It's this initial opening, but what I want you to see is there's this common man. He's like, he even says later, he goes, look, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. Rather, I'm just a herdsman. 
He says in chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, I took care of sycamore trees. He says, but the Lord took me from following the flock and he said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. This isn't someone who's a professional pastor. He's not a pastor's kid. He doesn't come from ministry. He's not in ministry. He's someone who was going to a normal job like we would think about clocking in, sitting in a cubicle. And he's just going on about his life, doing what he does, breeding sheep, caring for trees. And all of a sudden, God burdened his heart with the truth. And that's literally what the name Amos means, is burden. It means to carry. He's carrying this message. He sees injustices that are happening around him. And this begins to weigh on him. And he's called now, carry this, declare it to the people. But more than just the burden that he had and what he was called to carry, there's also this other aspect of what it means, that this common man being used by God, carried by God, to be used by him to declare his truth. And I think that my prayer is that this would be an encouragement, that this isn't just like, okay, pastor, this is for someone like you to stand up and say in our culture. This is someone who's not in ministry, who doesn't come from that background, who's just going on about their life and who God says, this is my word, carry it, speak it. And he was rejected because of it. Because his message was not received with kindness. This was a time when the northern and, and the southern kingdom were divided, but there was great prosperity. Stock markets on the rise. Numbers are looking good. There's money in the bank account. Real estate's doing great. The, the military has taken new territory. The, they're expanding. Things are looking good. And now, all of a sudden, Amos is going to stay up and say, instead of prosperity, there's going to be poverty. Instead of health, there's going to be sickness. Instead of this sense of, look how God's blessing us. You're saying that there's coming judgment. Why don't you just calm yourself down, Amos? Are, are, are you anti-Israel? Do you not care? Look how good we're doing. Just leave us alone. And yet, he speaks. And the word of God challenged the status quo. The, the wisdom of the day. And people didn't want to listen. And the reality is today, I don't think it's that much different. Do we want to listen to what God has to say or would we rather just be comfortable in our cultural status quo? The book, Amos is going to end with this statement. The final words of the book of how we're going to end says, the Lord your God has spoken. There's a call, there's an abandonment that is being judged that we're going to see of the people of God rejecting God's word. And I want those final words of where we're going to end up today. The Lord your God has spoken, but will we listen? That's the question. Because what we see as this book unfolds is an unrelenting judgment. We see that, that in the first two chapters, there is this spiral of justice that begins to happen. It starts from the outside and begins to work its way in. There's eight judgments in total. The first six are to outside nations. The last two are to Judah, the southern kingdom, and then Israel, the northern kingdom of where this is going to land. And it begins... In verse 3, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus. You see this relentless justice of God that starts out on the borders, 
right? And, and it's like this hunter slowly stalking his prey, relentlessly, because Damascus brutalized the neighboring countries, and they were going to be crushed because of it. Then it moves, zeroing in even closer. Gaza, brutalizing neighboring people, will be destroyed by fire because of it. God will not relent from the judgment that he will pour out on them for their brutality. Tyre broke their peace accord and brutalized the peoples, and they would be destroyed by fire. Such was their destruction that for hundreds of years, people didn't even know where the city of Tyre was. It wasn't until hundreds of years later that archaeologists began to unearth the ruins that they finally were able to locate it. Such was the destruction of this great city. Edom, in the pride, they turned against their own, and they were going to be judged by it. The Ammonites, war crimes against non-combatants, killing women and children, innocents for their own personal prosperity, fire and destruction, relentless judgment was coming to Moab, how they treated the neighboring countries, judgment, fire, destruction coming. And it's like you can feel it. The, the hunter closing in. That suspenseful movie where the protagonist is slowly executing justice against all those who have done wrong until you feel the warm breath against the back of your neck and you realize you're next. This is what was happening as the book of Amos unfolds. See, we all love justice when somebody else does wrong. We love justice for the, the wrongs of other nations, of other people. And it's like, yes, bring judgment, let fire fall, let them be destroyed. But now, all of a sudden, it turns to Judah. In Amos 2, verse 4, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah. And that is the warm breath against the back of your neck, knowing the relentless judgment of God is now at your doorstep. Three judgments are given against the southern kingdom. It says, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord. They've rejected God's word. It's, it's old-fashioned. It's bigoted. We're more advanced now as a culture. We don't need those simple truths from God's words. That was for simple minds. But we're cultured now. We don't need to listen to that instruction. And so they ignored the instruction of the Lord. And they have not kept his statutes. It's literally how we think of like embalming or uh, this impression engraving that's pressed on our hearts. It's not just the, the word of God, but the principles upon which that word was spoken. Even those principles have been thrown out. They did not care what God have to say. They did not care about the unchanging truths that there is one God who is holy and just, true, and whose words determine what is right and wrong. And they did away with it so that they could believe their own lies, truth of their own creation. It's as if God is saying, you've created a new word, a new truth for your lives, and you've chosen to walk in the way of those truths rather than mine. And when you decide as a country 
to rewrite the narrative of truth that is not based on God's word, it will always lead you astray. And we see that, don't we? Look at our own culture. When you remove the simple truth from the opening parts of Scripture in Genesis 1 that God created the heavens and the earth, He formed and filled it for His glory and for His purposes. And when you replace that truth to say that life is just accidental, and you begin to follow that truth, you will form a new morality based on that cultural lie. We replace God's Word that says he created the male and female and we replace it with the cultural lie that gender is a spectrum and then we create a new morality based on that cultural lie that will lead us away from God. They rejected God's word. They rejected his statutes. They chose to follow their own truths and call it right. And then the judgment zeroes in, in verse six, to its target to Israel. You see this zeroing in, and now it has its bullseye, its focus. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, because again, there will be three accusations against Israel. They sell the righteous person for silver and the needy person for a pair of sandals. You take people who aren't doing anything wrong and you crush them. You take those who are in poverty, working two jobs just to put food on the table and then they are indebted to you, just trying to survive. They become indentured servants. You crush them for your own comfort so that you can have more. And then you thwart the whole legal system to systemically crush them and to keep them in that place so that you can be comfortable and you're going to call that good and God comes against that. Later he says, when the wealthy can use their wealth to thwart the justice system to their own end, how wrong is that? When the poor and the needy, and it says you trample the poor, you obstruct the needy, you use your power and privilege to crush the poor, the vulnerable, and even more than that, you, you, you put a legal system in place that holds all of that in place. And then he says you profane my name by calling holy what God himself detests. He says, a man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl. You do what I say is wrong, and not only are you doing it, but you're calling it right. You're saying that, that you're, you're doing this almost as this act of worship. Flaunting your disobedience in my name is what God is saying. You've rewritten morality based on your own truth. Saying in the name of Jesus, well, doesn't it say... God is love, so then we just accept everything. And we pervert the name of Jesus. Calling right what he detests. And we think God's just going to stand in the back and not do anything? The book of Amos is challenging that status quo. 
He's challenging the idea that what, what these lies, the cultural lies that we have are just going to go on unanswered forever and ever. And it's not true. And he's like, don't you remember, don't you remember what happened to the societies and the cultures before you? When they walked this path, what happened to them? And we see him tell, and I want you to hear the voice of God in this. The, the pain, the, the, the frustration, the anger. He's like, I've told you. Don't you remember? I'm the one. It says in chapter 2, verse 9, I destroyed the Amorites. I brought you from the land of Egypt. I made you a free nation. I made you a free people. I led you through the difficult years. I raised up your sons as leaders to speak the truth to you just as you asked. I did all of these things on your behalf. And then you ignore my word. You ignore everything that I've said. And when a nation turns its back on the word of God, it will begin to pervert morality based on its own truth. It will push God's people to conform to that cultural norm where it will say, stay in the, the margins with your mouth closed. And then Amos, this common man standing up to speak, to challenge these truths. And God's response in 2.13, look, I'm about to crush you. I'm about to crush you. Escape will fail the swift. The strong one will not maintain his strength. And the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. Now again, just think about what this is saying. This is in a season where they're the military power right now. They've conquered new territories. The archer is like our Navy SEALs. This is like the Green Berets, the Navy SEALs, all of these. You think of the elite soldiers will cower in fear when God speaks. The one who was swift of foot will not save himself. The one riding a horse will not save his life. Even the most courageous of the warriors will flee naked on that day. This is the Lord's declaration. See, there is a time for mercy when repentance is available. And then there is a time of judgment. And that time had come. He says it'll be like a man. He runs away from a lion, then he's eaten by a bear. He runs into his house trying to catch his breath from the destruction, puts his hand on a wall, and it says, and a snake bites him. There is nowhere that you can flee from the judgment that was coming. And the whole reason is because God had called his people with a purpose. And they disobeyed God. See, the Jewish people were called to be set apart from the nations. They were supposed to be this people, this nation set apart to display God's glory, his truth, his values to all the nations around them. This is what it says then in Amos chapter 3 verse 2. It says, I have known only you out of all the clans of the earth. It's causing us to remember back to Genesis chapter 12 when God called Abraham and he's like, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your descendants so that you will be a blessing to all nations. 
That's why God set them apart. It was for that purpose, to that end. You have been blessed with blessings, with privileges, so that you would be a blessing to others. In the way that he wanted that done, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 10, 18, that God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. This was the justice of God on display. Some scholars have called this the, the quartet of the vulnerable. Widows, orphans, the foreigner living within our borders, the, the poor, those who are vulnerable. Look, I've blessed you. I've given you privileges. I've given you rights. I've given you abundance so that you will use that for the good of others. And instead, you use those very things to step on the necks of the poor, to hold them down so that you can be more comfortable and you think I'm going to be okay with that. He's like, it's detestable and there's judgment coming because of it. And this is why Amos says in chapter 5, verse 24, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. If you watch the video that I have, the short video for Amos from the Bible Project, you'll see in there where they talk about these two words in this passage, righteousness. In Hebrew, it's tzedakah. It means this right, equitable relationship between people regardless of social status or social differences. It is dealing rightly with one another and with God. Injustice, mishpat, it's the concrete actions you take toward others to create an environment in culture of righteousness. One scholar said it's not just about confronting the oppressor. It's about helping the oppressed. It's about creating this sense of a righteous environment. That is why God called them his people. This is why they were set apart to display his justice and his glory to the nations. But this is exactly what the nation of Israel had rejected. They had used their blessing. They had used these things that God had given them to pursue their own comfort. They had changed God's word according to their own purposes so that they could excuse their behavior and judgment was coming. Because Israel cannot display to other nations what they themselves did not possess. They were called to display God's justice, but they were not living justly within their own borders. They were called to display to all nations God's values, but they were not living according to his values. They cannot display God's glory because they did not care about his glory. They were rewriting truth however they saw fit in the day. And then you have Amos, chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to this message, you cows of Bashan. Do you, like you get the tone, right? The minor prophets are on a whole nother level, right? Like this is right around the, the Golan Heights. In modern vernacular, this would be fat cats. Like in how we think about it, they're just overstuffed, gorging themselves more, more, more. And so they're fat, overweight in their own comfort, sitting around, not caring how their actions impact. It's wealthy, 
privilege, who use their wealth for personal comfort rather than helping the needy. They use their position to harm rather than to help. And Amos is like, judgment's coming. There will be famine. There will be drought. There will be sickness and pestilence. There will be fire. Judgment is coming. And then there is this chilling phrase in verse 12. Israel, prepare to meet your God. Can you imagine? <laughs> like if that doesn't kind of make you just shudder. It's like if you've seen the Lion King, like when they're like Mufasa. And they're, like, they're like, Israel, prepare to meet your God. And then it goes on. He is here. He's at your doorstep. It's time. The one who forms the mountains, the one who creates the wind, the one who reveals his thoughts to man, the, the one who makes the dawn out of the darkness and strides on the height of the earth. The Lord, the God of armies is his name and he's here. Behold, prepare to meet your God. What happens when you stand in that place? Chapter 5. It's a lament. It's a dirge. It's a literally the song to be sung at a funeral. It's as though Amos himself is a pallbearer carrying the casket, casket that contains the nation of Israel inside. It will be a time of mourning because judgment is coming. So can we pause here for just a moment to acknowledge what I pray is completely obvious at this point? Like, what if we read this passage this morning? What if it said, America, prepare to meet your God? Could we stand? We're a nation that's been blessed with freedoms and privileges that are unimaginable in most of the world. We are a nation of economic wealth and military power. We have comforts and opportunities that can only be imagined in most of the world. But we are also a nation that has largely abandoned God's words and the statutes upon which they were spoken. We've created a cultural narrative that seeks to redefine what is true and to silence anybody who seeks to speak God's word. And it's leading us as a nation away from God and into destruction. There is no other way to understand the book of Amos. We have churches in America using the language of the prophets that have prostituted themselves to the cultural whims of our day so that they can gain acceptance from the culture by declaring right what God has said is wrong, using the name of Jesus to justify those very wrongs. Churches that use money to line their own pockets at the crushing of those who are needy by preaching a gospel of wealth instead of truth and humility and sacrifices so that pastors can get rich while the congregation suffers. 
churches who will turn around and say that anything is good, even if God says it is wrong, so that they are liked and accepted within the culture. And then they turn around and celebrate those very things within the churches that God says he hates. And we think he'll remain silent. We think tomorrow will be just as comfortable as it was today. We think our, our wealth and our military power protects us tomorrow before a holy God when he stands at our door and it says prepare to meet your God and we think that somehow we're going to stand. When you look at every nation, every society that has preceded us as a world power, where are they now? Let us not be so foolish as to assume we are any different. Could we stand when the one who forms the mountain stands at our door? The one who creates the wind, the one who reveals the thoughts of man, the one who makes dawn out of darkness, the one who strides upon the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of armies, could we stand or should we expect drought should we expect pestilence and viruses should we expect fires in mercy calling us to repent or will we so dig our heels in in arrogance that we assume that because we enjoy these privileges today they will exist tomorrow Amos is a warning to the status quo. It's a burden that Amos carried as he stood before the nation. It was a burden he felt as he looked out among the people. And it is a burden, I pray, we feel as well for our own nation. As we see how this book continues to unfold, I want us to draw four applications. What do we do with this? How then should we respond? Because in these final chapters, six through nine, we begin to see two woes and there's five visions that God gives to Joel that I believe can speak application into our life today. The first is this, if you see in chapter six, Verses one through three, woe to those who are at ease in Zion, to those who feel secure on the hill of Samaria, to the notable people in the first of the nations. Resist the temptation of complacency. Woe to those who are at ease. Woe to those who just assume that because everything's good today, we don't need to worry. Well, why are you saying all of this? Let's just stay quiet and stay comfortable. Let's not worry about it. You do you and, and we'll do us and let's not worry about the direction the nation is going. You think you're okay. You think everything's fine. We're the world's superpower. We have military might. We have economic wealth. The day of the Lord is coming. It says, this was a day that, that the Jewish people looked forward to. It's like, oh, this is going to be a day when, yes, he judges evil, and, and then we're blessed. It's going to be his return when everything's good. And, and God says to him in, in 518 to the nation, he's like, be careful what you wish for. Because before there's restoration, there's judgment. 
that there is a time when we will stand before judgment. There is one judgment between the believer and the unbeliever, and those who have not trusted on the name of Jesus Christ will be judged and cast into hell for eternity. But there is another judgment before the Bema Seat of Christ where we as believers will stand to give an account for the lives we have lived. Christ paid the penalty so that we can be in his presence. But we will give an account for our actions, for how we lived. There is a day coming when we will stand before God and when that day comes, it will be prepared to meet your God. And Amos is like, be careful what you wish for. Intercede. There's these visions that you see then in chapter 7. These pictures that God gives him. The Lord showed me, beginning in 7-1, this. He was forming a swarm of locusts at the time. The spring crop began to sprout after the cutting of the king's hay. When the locusts finished eating the vegetation of the land, I said, Lord, God, please, please forgive. How will Jacob survive since he is so small? And the Lord relented concerning this. It will not happen, he said. And the Lord God showed me this. The Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire. It was consumed the great deep and devoured the land. And then I said, Lord, God, please, please stop. How will Jacob survive since he is so small? And the Lord relented concerning this. This will not happen either, said the Lord God. Here's what I want you to see here. This was not... God changing his mind. This was God showing a picture to Amos of the impact of his prayers that can happen in heaven. That heaven did something because a person of God prayed. The whole point of these two pictures is to show that one man standing in the context of a dark nation crying out to God for mercy and that God may choose to relent because one person cries out. This is what it says in, in the book of James. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. That prayer changes things. Now is the time to be praying. Judgment has not yet come. Pray for repentance. Pray for renewal. Pray for a return to, to God's word and surrender to him while there's still time. Because what we see as the vision continues is then that time came to an end. He showed me this, it says in verse 7, the Lord standing there by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. That's a weight at the bottom of a, a string that will help you see if the wall is vertical or if it's leaning. And what God saw is that the wall was crooked and it had to come down. And the Lord said, I'm setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will no longer spare them. There is no more time for Amos to cry out. There's no more time to say, Lord, stop. How will they survive? There's no response here possible because the time has come. Isaac's high places will be deserted and Israel's sanctuaries will be in ruins. I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. The time of judgment had come. There is a time to intercede. <clears throat> and apart from repentance, there is a time of judgment. Now 
is the time to intercede. In chapter 8, verse 1, I think we also need introspection. See, in this fourth vision, the Lord God showed me this, a basket of summer fruit. And he asked me, what is it that you see, Amos? And I replied, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come for my people Israel. I will no longer spare them. In that day, the temple songs will become wailing that this is the Lord God's declaration. Many dead bodies thrown everywhere. Silence. Kirsten and I keep this wooden bowl in, in our kitchen that's with tomatoes and apples. And I don't know if it's only our house, but at times they all don't get eaten in time. And so they start to get overripe and they look good. And then you go to pick one up and it has that soggy, moldy bottom. You know what I mean? And that kind of like nasty, and you're just trying to like pick it up and not get it on your hands as you dump it in the trash. This is that basket of summer fruit. It looks good until you go to pick it up and you realize it's over-ripened. And the only thing to do is to throw it away. That looks can be deceiving. The nation of Israel was fat with power, wealth, and privilege, and yet they turned and they crushed the vulnerable for personal gain and then walked into church every Sunday. For them, it would have been Saturday. They sang songs of worship. They took notes during the sermon. They gave financial donations after the service. They thought themselves righteous in the eyes of God. Look what we're doing, God. We're going to church. We're doing the right things. But I want you to hear what God said to them. Because here's the danger, and some of the words that I'm intentionally using are extremely politicized and polarizing in today's culture and in speech. We don't like the word power. We don't like the word privilege. We don't like the word blessing. We don't like the word justice or injustice or righteousness. And all of these words become polarizing and they become political terms that first belong to God. And I want us to step outside of the political drama in which we live to seek what God has to say about what righteousness is and what justice is so that we walk according to his ways and not in the mode of our culture. Because you had people here who were going to church and they were doing all the right things and yet when they left church on Sunday. They were treating people with injustice. They were using the blessings that God had given them to step on the necks of those who were vulnerable. They were enduring and allowing things to happen within the culture and within the judicial system that was oppressing the vulnerable and they did nothing. And they were partaking in those very things. And this is how God responded. I hate, I hate, I despise your feast. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies, that even when you offer your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of your fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. Think of this.
I will turn your feast into mourning, your songs into lamentation. I will cause everyone to wear sackcloth and every head to be shaved. I will make that grief like mourning. For an only son, it's outcome like a bitter day. If all we do as a church is gather on Sundays, worship God in songs that are meaningless, going about our lives unsurrendered to his word, just simply following the cultural lies, and then coming in here and worshiping Jesus and thinking he's okay with that, I pray that when you hear the words of Amos, you realize he's not okay with that. Like we see churches in the book of Revelation who had abandoned God as their first love, who, who would not stand up against false teachings within the church. And God said that he was going to remove his spirit from that gathering. The book of Amos is not just to intercede for others. It's to have introspection into our own lives. Do I say that I stand according to God's word? And yet, how am I living? How am I using the blessings that God has given me for the good of others? Or am I only seeking more comfort, more opportunity for myself? Just a fat calf from Bashan. This is where the word begins to hit closer and closer. And then we see God beside the altar. It's another one of these hard passages. If you haven't realized, like Amos, it has a glimmer of hope at the very end, but we're not there yet. There's one more thing, and it almost feels like the other side of God's omnipresence, him being everywhere. We think of the beauty of Psalm 139. Where can I escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The psalmist writes. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there, your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. And we like that. Until we're found guilty in the presence of a holy God. And then we read Amos 9, 1 through 4. I saw the Lord standing b beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals of the pillars so that the thresholds may shake, and knock them down on the heads of all the people. Then I will kill the rest of them with the sword. None of those who flee will get away. None of the fugitives will escape. If they dig down to Sheol, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide on the top of Mount Carmel, from there I will track them down and seize them. If they conceal themselves from the sight uh, on the sea floor, from there I will command the sea serpent to bite them. And if they are driven by their enemies into captivity, from there I will command the sword to kill them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. It's really weighty. <laughs> These are the, this is why I think it's important that we read the Minor Prophets. Because they challenge us in ways that we would not choose on our own. But there's something here. As we conclude, as we think about what it means 
to not grow complacent, to intercede, to have introspection. But then as we look at what it means to return to God and his word, the day of the Lord does bring judgment, but it also brings blessing. And this is where it ends in a glimmer of hope. In verses 11 through 15, in that day, I will restore the fallen shelter of David. I will repair its gaps. I will restore its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. This is the declaration of the Lord. He will do this. And here, all of a sudden, we have this beautiful picture of what the gospel produced because of Jesus Christ having taken our punishment for sin before God, but knowing that we will give an account for how we live our lives. It says all nations being called among the people of God, the remnant of Eden and then all nations that bear my name in verse 12, the people of God. Do we believe that we bear that reality? We are called as a people, as representatives, as children of God to reflect his glory, his values, his truth. There is a message of hope and of judgment that is upon our shoulders as we walk out into the world to not only speak, but to live out, to let justice flow. Let our lives display the transformation the gospel has done as we understand and we acknowledge the ways in which God has blessed us and we use those blessings to be a blessing to those who are most vulnerable. Let us be a people of God that walks in such a way and surrender in return to his word. Let's pray.